How many of y'all are Marvel Avenger fans out here? All right, I got some folks. Okay, for those of you who are following the whole Marvel lore Avengers, I just want to let you know I'm one of those one of those fans. So, for those of you who are, who you'll know this story, but for those of you who uh, don't know this story, let me tell you a story from one of my favorite movies, Captain America: The First Avenger. So, let me set the scene up for you. It is World War II. Uh, there is a group of Allied soldiers who have been captured, and they are now behind enemy territory in occupied Germany, and so they are being held at a, got the bad music, do, 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 <laughs> at a Hydra um, weapons facility. Now, if you don't know who Hydra is, Hydra is the evil scientific arm of Hitler's regime. And so these allied soldiers are, are captured. So, um, Captain America, who's also known as Steve Rogers, he is with the camp there, you know, not behind enemy lines, and, and he wants to go rescue his friends and Bucky, his, his best friend growing up. And so his commander, of course, says, no, you can't do it. Don't go. It's too dangerous. Well, what does he do? Of course, you know, he gets Iron Man's father to, to hijack a plane and, or get a plane. Anyway, drops behind enemy lines. Now, there is explosions. There are blasts. It is his... It is epic and he rescues you know over a hundred or so allied soldiers uh, there he is just amazing what he can do and they are leaving and as they're going they are getting these weapons that have been developed here in this Hydra plant this weapons facility and these aren't just ordinary weapons because it is what an Avenger movie and they are they are empowered by does anybody know what it is the space stone. That's right. They have been, been powered with this ancient uh, stone that was created in the universe before the universe even was. And so they've somehow figured out how to capture its powers. And so they've turned, they've weaponized it. And so as these allied soldiers are grabbing the weapons, they're shooting their enemy. And this blue blast of ethereal, you know, space energy comes out. And people just, they're just being obliterated, cliff, cliff. And then there's, there's the final scene where they actually jump into and command this Hydra tank, and then they, this is where it climaxes, and then they, they shoot, and boom, I mean everything, it's death, destruction, the bad guys lose, Captain America, the allied soldiers win, and I, I, I'm like at home in my red chair, you know, watching Netflix or whatever, it's TNT, and I'm like, yeah, that's right, the bad guys got it. Okay, how many of y'all ever do that in movies? Do y'all, any, any, anybody? Yes, why is that at some level in such a kind of a bad way? You know, just so deeply satisfying. <laughs> I think because, and, and obviously it's satisfying because they, it's a very lucrative to make these kinds of movies. As I think about what it is about this that I think is so satisfying to me and maybe to you as well, I love that there is a clear enemy. And, and that enemy, the Red Skull, I mean, he is evil. And Captain America, he is so clearly good. And there is this, this dichotomy, this, this power struggle between good and evil. And the Allied soldiers seem to be, you know, uh, they're overwhelmed. They're, they don't, they're not as strong. They're, they're the weak, ragtag guys who have been, you know, in prison. And it's almost that David versus Goliath. And then, you know, David gets his rock and puts it in the swingshot. And boom, Goliath falls. 
falls and the crowd cheers. And I think there's something inside of me. Okay, I'm just going to be honest. When I am mad at somebody, that is what I imagine myself doing. <laughs> yeah, but maybe not with a Hydra hijacked, you know, tank with, you know, space stone empowered blue whatever. But, but don't we do this sometimes when we feel that maybe an injustice has been done towards us? Maybe, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe they didn't clean the kitchen like they said they were going to do. Or maybe they didn't pick the kids up in the carpool line when they were supposed to. Or maybe it was your mother-in-law. Or maybe it was your coworker, Or maybe da, 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 it's your evil boss, you know, your evil boss. And so rather than, you know, getting out the hydro tank with the space stone blue, whatever this stuff is that obliterates people, here Here's what I do, and maybe you do this as well. I have these, I have these conversations in my brain, in my mind, where I am right and they are wrong. I am righteous, self-righteous, and they are evil and wicked. And maybe with my, you know, my, ver my words, my verbiage, I am making my case and, and letting them know that I am right and my logic is good and they are evil. And we find ourselves in this battle sometimes, sometimes with the people that we love and the people that we care about. A couple of weeks ago, I posed the question, and this is, we're kind of continuing this conversation, but the question was, do you have a heart of war or do you have a heart of peace? Do you have a heart of war or do you have a heart of peace? Today, I want to continue that conversation as we continue looking at the Gospel of Mark and, and, and just watching Jesus in these stories that have been captured uh, by Mark the Evangelist. But the question that I have for us today is similar, but it is different. And here is the question. This is the big idea for today. Not do you have a heart of war or do you have a heart of peace, but what do you do? when you have a heart of war instead of a heart of peace? What do you do when you find yourself trapped in that, that mental game where you have so personified the people, the person that you're frustrated with, that you're angry with, that, that you are in tension with, uh, and they to you are like the Red Skull, the Hydra leader, and you are Captain America perfectly right in the situation. Well, today we are digging into a story, and it is in Mark 6, 16 through 24, and, and I want to set this up. This is the story that kind of is the backdrop, but where we're going to go with this, I want to I want to kind of unpack this story, kind of help us kind of walk through, see the historical context, but then what I'm kind of looking for, kind of the, the cherry on the top, if you will, is how did Jesus and his disciples respond after this event. And going back to that idea, do you have a heart of war or do you have a heart of peace? And what do you do when something has so triggered you that you find that you have a heart of war? So with that, let's dig in. So verse 16, when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. Now, let's pause right here because I want to kind of set this up. What has happened before, and, and if you have been coming every Sunday or maybe watching online, you kind of know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. What has happened earlier in this, in this passage is that Jesus has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Next, he sends his disciples out uh, to preach two by two. He, he warns them that they might be rejected, and he says, if that happens, he said, shake it off, don't make a big deal, but keep on 
with your mission. Keep on focused on the mission of the gospel of the kingdom and doing good and healing and all the things that I've told you to do. So next, verse 16, when Herod heard about Jesus and all that was happening, he said, John, the man I had behead, I've beheaded has come back from the dead. Now, why did Herod behead John the Baptist? And remember, John the Baptist is Jesus's first cousin, okay? All right, for Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Y'all, this is a long sentence. This is a lot. I mean, this is a lot packed. Did y'all track all this? Okay, so here, let me, let me just set the stage. All right, you remember in the Gospels where we hear about Herod the Great killing all the babies. You remember that when Jesus is born? Everybody got that? Okay, this is not the same Herod. This is Herod's, Herod the Great. This is his son. It can get very confusing because they kept naming their children after themselves. And so, but this is Herod's son. He had like, I don't know, seven kids or so. He killed three of them, I think, because he felt they were threatening his power. But to the remaining four, he had divided up the territory and had given Herod Antipas, this is who we're talking about here, a set an area, the other, the other kids, you know, I'll give you a little bit of the farm, you take an acre, you take that. Well, anyway, and, and what's interesting is that here is this guy, and he is Herod's son, but it says that he had married his brother Philip's wife. Okay, there is a lot here. Okay, it's not just that he married, okay, let me see if I can get this straight. It's not just that he married his brother's wife. It was that his brother's wife, I think, was also the grandchild, the granddaughter of Herod, and she had not just married Peter, she had married two of the other brothers as well. Does that, did y'all follow that? I mean, you think your Thanksgiving and Christmas family gatherings are kind of a little messed up and weird? Well, you don't have any, Herod, Herod is the one. So, so he has married his niece, who is also his brother's wife. We got all that? And to do that, he also, Herod, Herod Antipas, had to divorce his wife, who was the princess of a neighboring king. So let's just say it is really messed up. All right, it is very messed up. That's all you have to remember. So I don't remember all the details, but it was messed up. So John the Baptist, he is doing, you know, he is out preaching repentance. He is telling people to turn away from their sins. But, but if I were John the Baptist, I would have just told people that I thought were going to respond to my message and like me and listen to me. But no, he's got the courage to go and tell Herod, who is the governor of this area, and he says it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So it states that in the book of Leviticus, and that's what he's referring to. So Herodias, again, all these Herod names. This is Herod the Great's granddaughter also. You got the whole story. So Herodias, the person he has married, bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Again, can you imagine Thanksgiving dinner? You've invited your pastor to come over and, and maybe say the blessing or whatever. No, I want to kill you. Um, but without Herod's approval, she was powerless. 
She didn't have complete autonomy here. Herod, it says, respected John. And knowing that he was a good and holy man, he was protecting him. And he had actually had him imprisoned um, because Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but he liked to listen to him. So you've got this tension here that, you know, the story is setting up. Uh, Jesus is, one of the things that's interesting about this story, and scholars have noted this, is that Jesus is not mentioned in this story. Uh, before Jesus is the primary character in every single story and then this is almost this little this little sideways story if you will but but here is Herod he is protecting John the Baptist then Herodias saw that her chance had finally come and it was on Herod's birthday so he throws a great big birthday party for himself I like to do that too sometimes, you know, no, not just kidding. Anyway, he gave a party and he invited his high government officials, his army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. So here's the question. Why did Herodias think that her chance had come to get back at John at this birthday party? Why was this the moment? I think it's because she knew that Herod didn't want to feel weak in front of all of these high officials and these people that he wanted to impress and to be perceived as powerful in front of. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Okay, let's pause right here. His daughter came in, Herodias' Herodias's daughter came in. We think, you know, maybe because of the Greek term that's used there, she's probably 12 or 13 years old. She danced a dance that greatly pleased Herod. Now, I don't know about y'all, I don't think this is ballet. You know what I'm saying? You know how like when you go and your daughter's taking dance and they all get up on the stage with the little tutus and it's the, you know, plie, releve, tota. They're not, and we're all taking pictures. I don't think this is the pleasure that he received. He said it greatly pleased him and all of the other men there. Think about that for one moment. If you're a dad, everything inside of you would want to protect your daughter from that type of attention. That's just how messed up this story is. And instead, he is pleased by her dance. And he says, ask me for anything that you like. And he said to the girl, I will give it to you. And he even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. Now we hear that and we think Herod is this great and powerful man. What the early church would have heard, they would say, what a joke, Herod. You don't even have a kingdom. Yeah, your father was Herod the Great. You've been kind of given the backcountry of the Galilean area to govern. It is not a kingdom. It is a territory. And what they also would have known was that shortly after this happens is that Herod is actually, he keeps, he keeps petitioning uh, for the emperor to be called a king. The emperor basically says no, and, and, and so he, he never gets that title that he wants. Remember, remember earlier in the story, the, the woman that, that Herod was married to, but then he divorced, remember how she was a princess, remember that? How do you think her daddy felt about that? He wasn't happy. So what he does, he comes in and he engages Herod in a war, soundly defeats him. Herod is not a great man. He has got his tail between his legs. But here he is promising, very grandiose, as if he has something to give. And he says, I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. 
She goes out, she asks her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Now, this is a story that somehow often gets left out of our children's ministry curriculum. It is a story that I don't remember ever acting this out during vacation Bible school. Jonah and the whale, yes. Uh, beheading a man, no. And so then Herod, he deeply regrets what he had said. But because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, again, his, he's just a people pleaser. He couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. All right, let's pause here. Y'all, if this were an Avenger movie, what would happen next? The executioner, he's going down. He's going down to the prison. They're about to cut John the, John the Baptist's head off. What's going to happen next? Da, 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 da. I mean, Captain America's going to jump out. Somehow he's been transported back in time because you know they can do that. And then because of, y'all remember Ant-Man? Okay, well, anyway, that's a whole nother. That's a whole, but anyway, Avenger movies, Jet fans just tracked with me then. But they would have gone back in time. They would have gotten the, the Hydra-developed space gun with, the, with all the blue ethereal, and they would have blown Herod and his people to smithereens. But that is not this story. But here's the thing to think about. That power, that type of power was at Jesus' disposal as the Son of God, as, as the Son of God, fully God, fully human. But that does not happen. Instead, what happens is that the soldier beheaded John in the prison. And he brought his head on a tray and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. Can you imagine how twisted and messed up and evil and wicked all of that was? Now, what I want us to watch for is the response. What is the response? John's disciples heard what had happened. They didn't come in with guns. They didn't come in with bow and arrows. They really couldn't. You know, that power wasn't available to them. But they came and they got his body. Gently, can you imagine? He's headless. They wrap him up and they bury him in a tomb. They bury him in a tomb. What grief, what feeling that evil has won, that uh, the good guys have lost. Can you imagine the anger, that feeling of, I, I want to get even, that must have welled up inside of them as human beings, that human nature, that, that desire for revenge, that, that desire to, to get even. But here is how Jesus responds. Matthew gives us a little bit of extra commentary. And he says, but when Jesus heard about this event, did he go in and begin to, you know, on, as we say, Twitter and Facebook and all the things, begin to demonize Herod? He didn't. He didn't because he knew that his enemy was not Herod. His enemy was not Herod. His enemy was sin and death. And he had a mission, and he had a purpose, and he knew there would be evil dictators that would come, and they would go, all we have to do is read through the book of Revelation, and that's really what that message, that whole message of that book is about. We will see evil kingdoms rise and fall and rise and fall. But in the end, he knew his purpose was to defeat sin and death and break the power of sin and death for once and for all when he died on the cross. And he did not 
get distracted. He did not let that desire to get even for revenge, for anger to consume him. And as a leader, he was able to create an environment that I believe influenced the rest of his disciples, the inner circle, the outer circle, John's disciples. I believe that his heart of peace, he was able to influence the culture how they as, they, as they moved forward, the culture that they created out of that heart of peace. He pulls his disciples away. He said, let's go to a lonely place to rest, uh, presumably to grieve, to just to process what had happened. His cousin had died. And so, so brutally. And, and, in, and in Jesus's mission, you know what I'm saying? Like he was doing the work of God. He pulls away. They go to a lonely place. Crowds begin to follow. Jesus preaches, and then the disciples say, send, send these people away because they're hungry. It's the end of the day. And y'all know the story because this is the story that always gets included in vacation Bible school, in children's curriculum. Jesus heals the 5,000. Jesus heals the 5,000. It says that he felt compassion, and he felt empathy, and he felt mercy. And where he directed his power the power that was available to him as the Son of God, he, rather than directing that towards Herod in anger and punching back in evil, returning evil for evil, instead he directed all of that power and he did one of his very greatest miracles as he fed the 5,000. As I think about this in the culture and, and going back to that question, you know, what do you do, you know, when you find yourself with a heart of war rather than a heart of peace? I think the, the, the message that I take from this is I want to respond as Jesus did. And I don't know what that looks like, but I think it is to not respond in kind, to not respond in kind. And Romans uh, 12, Paul said it this way. He said, don't hit back. Don't hit back. Jesus very well could have hit back. The disciples could have hit back. I can hit back. You can hit back. Uh, we can do that. And clearly, usually, you know, it's not an Avenger movie. It's usually, our, it's usually our, our, our parents that we're mad at. We're mad at our kids. We're mad at our husband. We're mad at our co-worker. We're mad at our boss. We're mad at the government. We're mad at Fauci. We're mad at, you know, what, whatever. Um, but he says, don't hit back but discover the beauty in everyone. I love that, discover the beauty. I would say discover the humanity in everyone. Discover their story. Find yourself, putting yourself in their shoes, trying to see the good. He said, see beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. Don't insist on getting even. Um, because when we are seeking to get even. Um, Andy Stanley said it this way. I heard it in a, a podcast. I, I don't know if I can say it exactly right, but he said something like, when you try to get even, you're getting even with someone that you don't even like. <laughs> so what, what, what kind of, and, and the whole thing too is that you think that when you're getting even, that somehow that ends the story. But it doesn't. Usually returning evil for evil only perpetuates the story. And in a war, what do we do? We gather people around us, too, and so then it can become even bigger. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. Uh, God says, I will do the judging. I'll take care of it. You know, today we are talking about 
John the Baptist. We are talking about his story. We're talking about his message. We're talking about his legacy. If you go to the Louvre, if you go to many of the great um, you know, museums around, around the world today, you will find beautiful paintings depicting this moment uh, when John the Baptist is beheading. We are telling his story. Whereas Herod, he has been swept away as kind of a, a laughing stock uh, throughout history. But God has gotten the last word. He says our enemies, our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go and buy that person lunch. If he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. And, and of course, Jesus didn't go and give Herod uh, water and drink and food because Herod didn't need it. He had a feast of his own. But instead, Jesus channeled all that energy for good and compassion to feed the multitudes. He said, don't let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. Get the best of evil by doing good. What a beautiful story. When we find ourselves with a heart of war, I think the question that, or the kind of the, the thing that I take away from this, and I hope you do as well, is to begin to see people. Jesus saw the multitude. He, he saw them as hungry, and he moved in compassion, and he took that rage. And took, well, I don't know if he had rage and anger. I know I'd have had rage and anger because that's kind of me. But anyway, uh, the thing that I have to struggle with, but, but instead he turned that to doing good. So as we think about this, I want to invite you. Has someone come to mind, a person, a situation, um, you know, um, someone? And I want to ask you this question. What would it look like in that situation to return good for evil? What difference would it make if instead of the imaginary conversation in your brain where you win, they lose, you're self-righteous, they're, you know, fill in the blank, what would it look like if in that situation you returned good for evil. May we live into this message of John the Baptist where God was, you know, Jesus was, was not in the story, but Jesus was all over.